Hello and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. My name's Shane Brennan and I'm Chief Executive of the Cold Chain Federation in the UK and the host of the podcast. Today we're bringing you the audio recording of the Cold Chain Conversation discussion I had earlier this week with some members and some experts on where things are at in the UK energy market and global energy market right now. Coaching conversations are a chance to uh, get under the skin of an issue, talk about a big theme, talk about uh, the policy drivers, the industry implications and the long-term meaning of a shared challenge. Coaching conversations made possible because of the support of our Platinum Club. Thank you to Star Refrigeration, to Unicarriers, and to Train Technologies for your ongoing support of our organization, um, supporting the Coaching Conversation series as well as our events and our other activities. Um, in the conversation, you're going to hear from Kath Chapman, the Managing Director of Amoresco, as uh, CCF members providing absolutely top class advice as consultants on energy procurement, energy. Uh, management strategies for businesses, large and small. From Neil Stott, the Business Development Director at MyPower, who are providing great renewable energy solutions, particularly uh, solar solar fit-outs. And then two of our storage distribution leaders, one being John Stowe, the Managing Director of ACS and T Logistics, um, and Peter Summerton, Managing Director of McCullough Island. And over the course of the hour, we had a really good in-depth discussion about why we are where we are and where we're heading. So I'm just going to hand over to it now. I hope you enjoy. So without further ado, um, and I'll whisper of a broad introduction, I'm going to ask my panellists to join me, which is John Stowe. Sorry, John, we've we've got a typo in the the, the slide there. Uh, John Stowe, uh, Managing Director of ACS and T Logistics. Peter Summerton, the Managing Director of McCullough Ireland. Neil Stott, who's the Business Development Director at MyPower, who are significant experts in providing renewables. And Catherine Chapman, who is the Managing Director of Amoresco, who are our, uh, one of the leading um, advisors to the industry on energy market management generally, procurement and all other things. Um, so thank you all for, for joining us today. Um, I'll ask you to say a bit more about yourselves when you, when you come into the conversation. So, Kath, can you kick us off? Now, I obviously did a little bit of an overview of, of, of how things are, but can you sort of tell us, based on your experience of the market, how have we got to where we are? What, what are the drivers of that, and how do you see it playing out from here? Okay, so uh, good morning, everybody. Yes, so we need to actually go back before the sort of conflict in Ukraine, because actually the origins of this problem that we're experiencing actually go back further than that. And it's a fundamental change in the world's supply and demand balance in the gas market. So um, if you think about electricity generation, it's largely nuclear, renewable and gas. So gas is the price setting fuel. Uh, for electricity. The two things that a uh, a generator who uses gas needs to buy is obviously they need to buy the gas to generate the electricity and they also need to buy the carbon because obviously gas is a fossil fuel. So we actually saw the origins of this crisis beginning back in sort of July, August last year time and it is because of this change in the supply and demand for gas because there is an increase in the demand for global gas 
And some, a, a large amount of that is actually coming from increased demand from China. And that has been led by the pressure on the Chinese government to reduce their emissions. So actually what they've done is they've switched from coal-fired generation to gas-fired generation, because whilst gas is still a fossil fuel, it is a less emitting fossil fuel than coal. So that was where we started to see you know, the origins of the problem, coupled with the fact that we had very low levels of storage across Europe for uh, gas levels. So there was a huge amount of concern about whether we would make it through last winter, particularly if it was a very cold winter. And just as we were starting to come out of those concerns, because actually we had a mild winter and it wasn't just a mild winter in the UK, it was a mild winter across the whole of Europe. We then saw the um, in invasion of Ukraine, which caused prices to spike right back up again. But we must remember that prices were at those very high levels prior to the conflict starting. Um, and as I say, that was two things really drove that. One was this fundamental change in supply and demand in the global gas market. And secondly, we saw significant increases in the carbon market and the cost of carbon. And that was partly driven by governments. So in Germany, for example, we saw that they set the carbon floor at 60 euros a tonne, whereas previously it used to trade at about 20 euros a tonne. So those two things really got us to the point of the crisis. Then there was the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which exasperated the situation even further further, um, all of which I have to say is set against the background that we have to remember that the actual flows of Russian gas are still continuing. So, you know, there hasn't been any cessation of physical supply. We're now probably at a stage where there is still concern and we still have very high prices, but we're probably at the levels where we are, we're at the levels that we were prior to the invasion. So if we think historically about wholesale prices that make up, as that chart shows, between 35 and 40% of your cost base, um, you know, we're, we're used to operating in a world where it was about 50 pounds a megawatt or 5p a kilowatt in sort of um, uh, build terms. And looking forward, even for years two and years three, we're looking at a world where that's like 15p. And it's because we are going to have to find new sources of gas. So it was already concerned about the availability of gas. It's been made worse by the Russian situation. And now we're going to have to find new sources. And the reason we're seeing these prices continue for a two, three year period is it will take infrastructure projects to replace the Russian gas. You know, we bought Russian gas not just because it was economically sensible to do, but because they had the infrastructure in place. They built the pipelines, basically. And the cheapest way to move gas around it's in a great big pipeline, which is exactly what you've got coming out of um, the Russian in infrastructure. So will we replace that gas? Yes, we will. But it will take us a period of time to do it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to come back to the levels that historically we would have expected. Just to sort of slightly bore you with the technicality, you could say that the floor for gas is really what it costs us to import from the United States. And if you look at where that floor is, it's at about 100 pence a firm. So we're not that far off where that floor is. Um, and we are looking in a world where, you know, 10 to 15p for wholesale over the medium term, and by medium term, I mean two to three years, is probably the world that, that we're looking at until we bring on new sources of gas demand. And of so, course, it's- so, yes. Catherine, in that context then, so just to sort of to reiterate the point, the norm, the new normal, I've used the phrase, sorry, um, yes. is going to be three times more expensive for electricity than it was pre this crisis period. 
for the next two to three years. That's what we're seeing and that's what the market's saying. So we're seeing a floor in the market of about 15p. So when the wholesale market drops to that level, then we're seeing it bounce up, which is where we were before the uh, Russian-Ukrainian situation. So we're seeing a new floor, whereas it used to be at you know, four and a half, five p. You know, if you could get it at four and a half p, it was good. Um, now we're seeing that 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 floor more at 15p, certainly for the for the for the medium term. Yes, which is not great news, obviously, for the likes of yourselves. John. With that right. lovely thought ringing in your ears, can you quickly, quickly say a bit more about AZS&T and then how you see that from speaking more as a representative of the industry as a whole rather than just AZS&T, that issue playing out for cold chain for cold storage operators? Thank you, Kath, for that, that very good overview and introduction. I think um, it, it shows actually what a challenging outlook um, we all face at the moment and certainly you know, I'm, I'm not immune to that ACS&T. Um, for those who don't know us, we're a, we're a medium-sized um, cold storage and, and logistics company, and we, we operate out of three main warehouse locations and two main transport locations. And we specialize in the sort of the, the smaller to medium-sized customer um, with bespoke and flexible solutions um, that are tailored to, to the individual customer's needs. Um, and we operate out of manual operating cold stores, so we don't have sort of the latest automation in terms of what we do, which is great for flexibility, but obviously we have then a, a, a more midterm and aged property um, portfolio, which brings me nicely back to energy, I guess, because literally for anyone that's, that's operating cold stores, you know, energy has always been a significant cost and area of focus and attention in terms of what we do. And I guess ignoring that sort of environmental focus on net zero for one moment, you know, commercially, energy has always been a key cost element um, in every cold store, and in particularly in manually operated cold stores. And in terms of operating costs, if you're lucky, you're down towards 10% of your operating cost being energy. If you are not efficient and not well organized, it could be as high as 20%. And in fact, in the current operating environment, it could even be 20% plus, um, which is um, something that sort of focuses the mind, if, if nothing else. That figure, of course, will always be dependent on the proportion of high energy consumption you have within your operation, such as blast freezing and, and other activities taking place rather than just straightforward storage. I think operationally, the difference for us this year and the difference I see in the market this year is that energy costs, as, as Kath was indicating, have historically been reasonably stable and due to plentiful supply, if anything, there was occasional downward pressure in terms of the, the costing mechanisms. And of course, as, as Kath has just um, been describing, that's all changed, you know, with the situation in Ukraine, the government commitment to net zero, and then that fundamental change between supply and demand. And all of these factors are now significantly driving up energy costs in, in recent months. And in our own case, for example, if we did nothing and we just sat back and let it happen, potentially our profitability could reduce by something approaching 15%. So it's material and, and therefore whilst, whilst it might not be a subject that people want to look at, it's absolutely important that um, we devote some time and have a look at this. As Kath has already illustrated, you know, the present outlook is further upward pricing, um, looking at electricity, you know, the most optimistic um, views are actually late 23 into 24 when, you know, there might be, you know, some reversal of the upward trend, but, you know, you can see that is still, you know, sort of 18 months, you know, possibly two years away at, at best. Um, and, and therefore, 
if any business hasn't created an energy strategy by now, you know, point number one is every business should have an energy strategy and understand what it's doing and why it's doing it. I think the challenge that every operator has, is, as um, Shane said at the outset, is most companies have actually explored all the self-funding and, and easy things to do to actually try and mitigate the increase in energy costs. And there has been a window where customers have been reasonably receptive, if a customer is ever receptive to a rate change, you know, because obviously the whole topic has been very newsworthy, but that has a limited life um, to it as well. And therefore, we are back at what we can actually do better and different um, in terms of the, the sector. Distilling it back to the basics, every business really only has two options in this area. Either you use less energy or you buy it better. You know, there's no magic bullet. You've actually got to do one of those two, two areas. Now, I think every operator uh, has been using less, has been on the agenda for many years. And that can take the form of everything from participating in the climate change levy scheme operated by the Coal Chain Federation, um, or through investment, uh, or indeed if you are um, extending or adding new buildings by designing in and designing out energy inefficiency. Um, but the most obvious and easy improvements have already been actioned by coal store operators. So um, that then obviously leads on to what next, which is the more problematic bit. But if anyone hasn't explored all those areas, my advice is design an energy strategy and actually make sure that you, you actually quickly close off those areas because the energy pricing is not going to help you in the near future. John, thank you. That's a brilliant overview. If I, it's funny to say, distill that and put that out there as a Coltrane Federation briefing on what to do about the energy market. Um, <laughs> Peter, um, before I get on to talking about McCullough itself, can you tell everyone who, who McCullough Island are? But if we get into what you've done in the business per se, can you just give us a sense of whether it's, is it the same experience you're having in, in, in Northern Ireland and in your facilities in the Republic, or is there anything particularly different about the situation um, that, that John's described? Thanks, Shane. No, I, I would actually just concord with everything that Kath and John have said. That that is what the what the European market looks like. That's what the what the UK market looks like. Uh, these are these are global phenomena that are affecting us. They aren't they aren't um, regional uh, until we look at diesel and government interventions. So in terms of the electricity market, um, this this is definitely something that we're feeling on both sides of the REC. And uh, whenever we talk to people in Europe, they're finding exactly the same things happening as well. So, Thanks. first of all, Macaulay, Ireland, uh, we have three coal stores. Uh, we're on the end of Ireland. We have two in Northern Ireland and we have one in the Republic. Uh, we operate a, a haulage fleet as well. Our, our business really is moving goods uh, between the islands so that the coal stores are, are an assistance to stock and, and move those goods. Uh, we're, we're not by any stretch a massive coal store operator. Uh, however, we have been aware of energy concerns now for, for a number of years and going back even eight, nine years ago, we started on our Lisburn facility just uh, west of Belfast to develop uh, biomethane power. Now, we actually bring food. We started off with agro crops and we brought agro crops onto the site. We put them through a, an anaerobic digester on the site and developed biomethane to run through a CHP unit and power the coal stores, which was cutting sort of edge at the time to create an AD plant right in the middle of a city. This, this, I, should, I should explain this. This has happened very much in the urban environment, not where you naturally find 
AD plans to be. So we had a lot of government uh, loopholes to jump through regarding planning consents. We had a lot of not my back garden people who maybe just didn't want a biomethane plant in the middle of the city. But I think that this is where mentalities have to go in terms of, you know, we need to move on and understand. We need to find new sources of power. Uh, well, then, so this, this isn't really a, a true green credential because we're using agricultural lands to grow crops, which are going into an ID plant, whenever at the same time as that, food waste is getting into compost sites. So about two years ago, we started to uh, put food waste through the anaerobic digester, and we actually found it performed really well, and we could make more gas than we required for the CHP unit for the coal store. Uh, so we were, we were already selling some power onto the grid, and due to legislation, we couldn't put any more generation onto the site. So we had to find another way. So we began to upgrade that gas. Um, we put in a, a upgrading facility to turn it into biomethane for trucks. And um, we now have about 50% of our Northern Irish fleet running on biomethane, which has, whenever, whenever you look at how the cards have fallen, no, no one could have predicted whenever we started doing this that it just would have been so topical for today. But agricultural lands under pressure to grow crops, be it Brexit, be it Ukraine. So therefore, moving away from the agricultural crops onto food waste was a good call. And uh, obviously, with where diesel is today, getting it into getting it into trucks is is definitely the way forward. And we're we're, we're finding that the, the carbon footprint. I can send I can now send uh, fifteen trucks to Dublin and create the same carbon footprint that I used to create. Sorry with one truck. So therefore, uh, that, that's the reductions we're talking about, 80 to 90% reduction in CO2. So it's green, it makes sense. And to be honest, guys, it makes money as well, because we don't just do things because they don't make sense, because they're green. We do things because they make money as well. Now, on our other two sites in Maluskin, Dublin, we do put some power onto the grid and take it off for those sites. However, all the same things that John talked about there are, are all the same concerns that we have, and we can only have one culture in the business. We've actually found that the site management at Lisburn, because we're making the power ourselves, drive even harder to not use the power, because they see what goes into making it. It's not invisible anymore. It's not something that comes out of out of a cable. They actually see the effort that goes into making it. They see, they see what happens whenever the plant goes down as well. So that they understand the value, uh, not just the cost of the resource that we're working on. That's really that's really a compelling point around the fact that when you know where the energy comes from, you 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 understand how you how how you're using it. So without sort of betraying any commercial conferences, Peter, is how well insulated are you? Would you say from the uh, from from the shocks in the in the market based on based on the uh, based on the fact you have this in place? There, the the energy is only one part of it. We're seeing rising costs everywhere else as well, Shane. So we're, uh, on the percentage, it's energy. On the site that we have in Lisburn, we have we've protected ourselves reasonably well on the electric site. Um, truth, you know, the, the, the proof will only the proof will be in the eating on the biomethane side, because as we build that forward, there's been massive capital investment there as well, and um, because we're sort of first to it on the island of Ireland to do it in the way that we are doing it, there isn't a network of people around us, so we're 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 investing all the time. In, in things to protect the processes, you know, the, the safe, fail safe, fail, fail safe mentalities. 
that if, if this was more widespread, if we get more people to do this, we wouldn't have to say, take the same outside protective measures. We're, we're, we're sort of restricted because we're in front. If we could get more people to join the party, then we could actually move quickly because we would have had some of the, the, the insurances around us in place. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Neil, bringing you in, um, our, our final contributor, obviously Peter's already got into the, the, the concept broadly of, of, of generating outside. Kath talks about gas and, and the need for the, the supply of gas and the need for replacement for our current supplies and the dynamics there. So Peter's talking there about a renewable source. Obviously, that's your business. To what extent are you seeing this as the market opportunity? And to what extent are you seeing people starting to get serious about trying to generate their own energy on site? Um, as, as the situation we're in? Um, I mean, in short, uh, for us, demand has gone through the roof. Um, it's it, the market out there. I mean, that, as John said, there's no there's no magic bullet. Um, but what we're finding is, is that um, on the solar side of things, it's relatively speaking, um, a quick and straightforward uh, technology to implement and, and uh, install and, it, and it's, it's a proven technology. So we've, we've seen a significant rise in electricity prices and it's definitely driven more solar projects to the top of the, to, to the, top of the investment pile. Um, talked a bit about motivations in, in, in uh, some of the previous comments. We've seen a mix of motivations and I'd say that, you know, going back 12 months that environmental drivers were previously tipping the balance uh, on that sort of seesaw in terms of you know drivers environmental costs and side of side of things but i would say definitely now we're, we're seeing cost cost savings or avoidance as the primary driver and that very much so is also driving um quicker decision making as well so as, as a business we've seen a fourfold increase in the value of orders um taken over the last year and we've we've had to make some really tough decisions around raising our qualification bar, so uh, dealing with just the larger systems, um, which means that we can continue to deliver um, the, the quality expected by our, our, our clients by, by taking on less but larger jobs. Uh, just to give a, a bit of background on MyPower, we've, we've been in operation installing commercial systems for, uh, we're in our 12th year now, and, and at the moment our run rate, which is quite a step up from where we were, sort of 12, 24 months ago, we're installing approximately a megawatt of, of um, uh, PV a month at the moment. I'd say um, one of the other factors in terms of interest and demand, there's a lot, despite the challenging situations, we're seeing a lot more money in the marketplace. So there's a lot of funding coming into the marketplace, um, both from boutique lenders to infrastructure investors that are looking to secure both short and long-term returns. Uh, and I'm sure some of those on the call will be aware of some of the, the capital-free models, which make it very simple and straightforward, where a third party installs, owns, owns and operates the PV system on the roof and sells the electricity at an agreed discounted rate. Um, we see that typically more in a large corporate space. Um, in the main, our customers sort of uh, the SMEs and the small corporates tend to fund the installation themselves as that's where the, the highest returns are and the, the biggest mitigations certainly on the commercial side of things. Um, we've talked a little bit about some of the other drivers. So the, it, it's not just this current situation which has uh, driven 
uh, driven demand up. There are other macro factors at play too. So the energy crisis talked about, but um, it, we only go back to November 21 and we had COP26 and the climate change conference. And this had the effect of focusing the minds of business leaders and decision makers across the UK, again, raising the demand for renewable energy and, and, and as I say, for solar PV, given that it's something that it, it, it's straightforward to implement and, it, and it's a very cost effective um, technology. Um, whilst there, you know, sorry. Can you give a ballpark idea of, of, of how much contribution you can get during electricity on a cold storage site from a, from a solar installation? Yeah, I, I would say typically, yeah, so, so typically what, what we see with cold stores, you have um, you have this uh, ratio, sort of the, the consumption and then the size, the, the usable, the usable roof. Um, typically, we see 20 to 30 percent of um, a site's need being met by the uh, met by the PV system. You with, with cold stores, you, you typically go down the route of filling the roof. Uh, with with some of the coal chain members, actually, it's helped justify decisions to re-roof. So where there's been a an old, um, say, fibre cement type roof, um, insulating and going over that roof and and installing PV on top, that's that decision has been uh, made very uh, sort of cost positive to to go and do that, and the PV will uh, will will get a return on that investment both on the roof and on the uh, uh, on the PV as well. So that's typically what we see sometimes with customers. The very maximum we see, um, but I wouldn't say it's more, it, it's necessarily the cold cold chain, is sort of 40 to 50%. Um, and, and there you're ending up pushing quite a bit into the grid um, to achieve that level of, of, of your total, uh, your total uh, electricity coming from your PV system. But saying that, um, as Kath said, the the, the wholesale rate of electricity, the, the value of that is obviously driving the retail rate, but the value of the wholesale rate has gone up. So exported electricity into the grid, there's, there's greater value there as well. So, you know, it's it's a it works well from a solar point of view there. OK, um, I, 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 you picked up on the issue around 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 uh, around green. So, so, so environmental objectives and how that's impacting on on demand and renewables. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And before I move into the next question, which is about next questions, which are about coping with the energy market situation, Kath, can I just ask you a question specifically about? You mentioned the need for replacement of gas as the macro factor over the next two, three years. Yeah. Are renewables not? Can't we replace with renewable? Is no, that not very much from part of the picture. But again, while solar um, is a relatively quick uh, solution from a renewable perspective. Um, some of the longer term renewables like major offshore wind, they form part of it. But again, you know, those typically take two to three years. So that's why we're looking at that horizon. It's not just the replacement of the gas, but it's the increase in renewables. But again, that doesn't happen in a six to nine month time frame. Those large renewable projects will take, you know, 18 months, two years. But we also have seen a massive increase in on-site generation because the economics of it work so well at the moment on both renewable and a non-renewable basis. Um, so we've seen a huge uptake in that. But also the companies realizing that you need to look at your energy spend over a longer period of time. You know, typically people have had one, two, three year contracts and there's been this horrible volatility that we've seen over the last 12 months. And because of the developments we're going to see, we expect to see 
you know, the next year, two years. So therefore, people are starting to say, OK, do I need to think about my energy portfolio more like I would think about, say, a financing portfolio where you wouldn't just finance your operations through one instrument. You would use a range of different instruments that have different time periods associated with it. So we've seen a massive uptake in um, corporate power purchase agreements. So, you know, when you've done what you can do physically, you've done all the energy efficiency you can do, you've done your on-site generation, which absolutely should do. Um, you then start saying, well, what can I do to commercially secure my position? So I don't have a cost base that fluctuates by, you know, 10, 15% one year to the next and I haven't got control over. So that's where we're starting to see people enter into longer term uh, transactions. And it also meets the zero agenda, because if you buy from something like a power purchase agreement, you're buying from a specific renewable asset. So you can count that as zero on both the location and the market based uh, uh, basis in terms of carbon reporting so you know if your chief exec has announced something wonderful like oh we're going to be zero carbon by 2030 and then you're trying to figure out how on earth to actually do it um, these are one of the instruments that allows you to do it under any of the carbon reporting standards both national and international so you're seeing because it's becoming such a big part of the cost base businesses are prepared to look at these longer term arrangements that are a bit more complicated to put in place and you know involve longer term agreements by the very definition but it gives them sort of security of price um, it takes away that volatility and it meets the green agenda so there are solutions there it's just it's not going to be in the next six 12 months but you need to think longer term about how you how you source your energy to pick up on your point, uh, Peter, you know, there's nothing like somebody seeing a solar panel or a wind foam, wind turbine going to make them think, oh, that's actually where it com comes from. So that should definitely be part of the mix. But you need to look at commercial solutions to address the bit that you can't do through energy efficiency and um, on-site generation. Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a neat segue into sort of a question for you, John, which is, of well, the AS&T is a division of a wider group. Um, a group that has significant uh, responsibility and track record of delivery in this area. How is the sort of thing that Cass talking about there? The sort of way that the, the conversation is going across your business around how to look at energy for the for the medium and long term. Yeah, absolutely, Shane. I think um, you know, sort of being part of a group that places high importance on being environmentally responsible is obviously clearly commendable, but only reinforces that the resolve to do the right thing is actually the right thing to do as well. Um, and I guess for us, ACS&T um, will be like many of your members where we're not currently building new sites and therefore cannot incorporate the latest technology into a new build solution. So what we're very much doing is obviously looking at what we can do in terms of improving the existing property estate and making it more effective. I think obviously the good news that everyone is talking about is that being environmentally responsible is generally linked with good commercial payback and in good sense. I mean, Peter has demonstrated it obviously with, with his solution there in, in Northern Ireland. And therefore, once again, it actually fits quite well with that mantra of either use less or, or buy it better. I think what is clear, regardless of actually the, the um, perspective of my parent company, is the regulatory framework is directing all businesses to be more energy efficient. And obviously I mentioned earlier the climate change levy, but obviously there's an established set of frameworks in place ranging from so ESOS phase three, which doesn't apply to all companies. Clearly I, I recognize that, but actually many do fall within the 
you know, the parameters of, of that type of reporting. And obviously that brings in the four yearly audit that establishes the energy footprint and more importantly identifies where you can reduce your energy consumption and, and your carbon footprint together with the associated capital investment. Um, part, being part of the Camellia Group, we do that um, and we have that uh, review which we do with the Carbon Trust to actually achieve exactly that. And it's, it gives us a very good vision of where we should pinpoint our investment to get the best return and the best impact in terms of reducing energy consumption and, and reducing the environmental impact. Uh, obviously, then you've got streamlined energy and carbon reporting and all the other mechanisms that, that go with it as well. So a whole set of tools. John, John, can you can you when you're talking when you're thinking about sort of motivating the team in their day-to-day -day job in terms of how they set their what they prioritize what are the things what are the kpis and, and by that i mean what are the things that they sort of worry about from hour to hour in, in terms of their, their efficiency and what they, they see their job as do you see a route towards being efficient with the way they use energy as being part of that consideration is that part of how they see it now is that is that does, does this crisis and the cost of energy make management and therefore trickle down to the rest of the team to think actually we need to be careful we need to make sure that door's shut we need to make sure that we're we're, we're, we're being responsible and does that actually impact the bottom line at all in your in your experience um i mean the answer has to be yes but it's not the the sole driver i think you have actually three channels that run sort of parallel with with each other one is um with refrigeration in in terms of standard refrigeration obviously your compressors uh, are probably the most power hungry element of what you do so i don't know changing from reciprocating screw type to, to screw type um, um compressors to looking at obviously changing from ac to ec um you know um, power units and so on all of those type of things where you can engineer an improvement in terms of what you're doing. So that's definitely um, theme number one. Theme number two is actually how you analyze your usage day in, day out. And you know, I, I can come back to that in more detail later, but if you don't know where you're spending your money, you don't know if you're actually then targeting the right areas. So whilst it sounds very time consuming, analyzing your um, usage by chamber, by area, by activity, allows you to understand where your money is being spent and therefore what you should be doing differently moving forward. And it's only that third stream that comes back to good old operational common sense, which is, you know, uh, keep your customer stock sort of concentrated in one chamber so you're not opening doors left, right and center to, you know, as you say, you know, rapid roll doors to, to minimize, you know, air loss, you know, when you're actually opening a door to LED lighting and people's behaviors and all the rest is around it. But, you know, it is relevant, but it needs to be all three of those streams working concurrently. Oh, yeah, it's interesting. I think, I think you know, to me, sort of, you know, we, we are talking about people who are genuinely tamed down the thermostat in their houses because of where they were before the heat wave, um, in all because they were aware of the cost of it. I, I sort of show you how that plays out in a corporate environment, quite commercial environment like Coswood. Peter, I'm very conscious that you've got a plane to catch. So, so I want to bring you in for a for a sort of a, just just a sort of more comment and then let you get away to, to catch a plane. Um, you, you, obviously, you, Kath talked about the idea of like, you know, the business making a strategic choice to to invest in in the medium term energy resilience and certainty of their business. That's essentially a way of describing the CHP project from from a colour island's point of view. Um, is that 
what's next? How do you how do you see you know, you've obviously that you're proof feeling the benefits of that right now, but how do you see the doubling down on that? What's the next frontier of this in from your point well, of view? The next the next frontier for us for us is actually to be able to take the biomethane that we're producing off the grid in different places. Now this is where Northern Ireland's slightly behind the rest of the UK in terms of the the legislative frameworks to allow this to happen because we're not allowed at this point in time to inject onto the grid in Northern Ireland, which is, which is a problem. Um, it's actually quite amazing because Northern Ireland has one of the youngest infrastructures. Most of the gas pipes in Northern Ireland are plastic, so it's absolutely fantastically ideal to allow us to do this. But this is where government legislation, and this is where I suppose, I suppose that the mentality I have, even on the commercial side, is people talk about surcharges here. We need to get into our heads. This is a rebase. We need to rebase our energy. We need to rebase where we're getting it from and how we're doing it and what it's going to cost because it, it is for the next three, five years. And whereas I'll be critical again, whereas government's pursuit is to uh, consult for perfection, in the meantime, we have to continue to keep doing good because the only way you ever get there is by keeping doing good and keeping doing good. Perfection will always change. So it will because we'll, we'll, we'll learn new things and we'll learn a new challenge. So what we want to do, Shane, is we want to be able to we want to be able to get ourselves connected into the grid. We need to want to, want to connect ourselves with other sites and we just don't want to do it in paper. We need to make this real life so that the, 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 the amount of methane that's produced by our agriculture industries, by, by, by general waste sites and things like that, can be harnessed and used in those areas where we want to use it most, such as trucks. You know, uh, we've seen some differences between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, between the UK government and, and the Irish government, especially around red diesels. Uh, in, in, the, in the Republic of Ireland, the, the rebuilt fuel is still available, so green diesels effectively still there, whereas in the UK, we're, we're now running white diesel in our fridges where there's no alternative but to use that. So. We're actually being taxed, uh, and, and that taxation is preventing us from investing uh, in, in, the th in things that we can do something about. We can't do something about the diesel in a fridge on a truck. We need that diesel. There's no alternative. So taxing us on that is not the solution. Okay, it's that's removing our ability to invest in the areas where we need to invest. So that that's for the. That's the challenge I think would be the government. But for us, it's definitely biomethane, biomethane, followed by a wee bit more biomethane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah and totally. I get. I guess what's interesting in there is 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 side specific points around the biomethane availability uh, and feeding to grid is this idea of cold storage facilities and the businesses, cold chain businesses, being part of the energy grid rather than just being a tool. I guess that plays. A, I guess we talked. We had a discussion on Monday, which Tom Southall um, uh, chaired, and one of the probably the main conversations that came out of it was this issue of of the role of cold stores within the grid. You know, as potentially storing energy at times and, and releasing it to the grid. The idea of generation that you can you can achieve from your site and how you connect that to the grid. And one of the biggest frustrations I found is there are businesses that would take up a service like Neil's tomorrow, particularly like solar fields next to their facilities and stuff, not just on their roof based, but they can't get connected to the grid. So how do we, how do we, how, Catherine, from your point of view maybe, how do you, 
what is the how much of the infrastructure that we're relying on to physically get power around the country holding us back from from the sorts of things we could do in certain areas it's holding us back quite significantly um and i'm sure neil gets frustrated with this as well because you know you'll go along to a cold store and say yes it's ideal for solar or it's ideal for winds and you know there's no outstanding area of natural beauty right next to it and then you get embroiled in planning and whether or not you can get a distribution connection and sometimes you can get a connection to install the generation but you're prohibited from exporting anything because of the condition of the grid um, so I think there's an enormous amount of frustration for end customers who, you know, want to do the right thing, want to go down the renewable route, but sometimes get frustrated and aren't able to do it or do it to the scale in which they, they, they would like to do that. And there is a bit of catching up that needs to be done. I was at the Major Energy Users Council yesterday and National Grid were one of the speakers. And the kind of the disappointing feeling I got from it was I didn't feel that we were much further on than we were two years ago. Um, and the need for renewable isn't something new. It's kind of like, come on, infrastructure guys, you, you need to wake up and you need to support us. And likewise, I do feel the regulator could do more. The regulator has been really focused on domestic customers and all the price caps and everything that we see are all around domestic. And I think it's time that government and the regulator started to recognize that this is hurting businesses as well. And they should help them. And there are areas that they can help them. You know, a lot of your cost base is dependent on um, things like government policies and charges, the cost of us decarbonizing our electricity network. Well, that's something that is within their remit to be able to do something about. Um, so I do feel that there should be more support for the business users, and that's certainly something that we as a company are lobbying both uh, Bayes and Treasury and the regulator about, that they need to look wider than just the domestic, they need to look wider than just the voters. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, sure. a, couple, a couple of words on, on that on that idea of, the, of, of what, how much you, is your business being held back by infrastructure grids connection style uh, difficulties? Uh, it, we're, we're really starting to see see that kick in. Uh, there's certainly two very recent examples where um, uh, one one is a is a cold store where it would absolutely warrant two three megawatts on the roof. They've got the space. But unfortunately, can't can't get the grid connection. So the most we can install on there is is, is about a tenth of what should go uh, should go on the roof. And it's really really frustrating because it's it's infrastructure costs and it's infrastructure. It's it's grid infrastructure that's preventing this. Um, and it's really frustrating, especially for cold stores because they will look at things from a uh, the grid will look at things from a black and white point of view, irrespective of whether you're going to use 90% of the energy on site. The technology, what they, they're designed to protect the grid. That's that's what their role is. The, the distribution network operators is to maintain and, and ensure the grid operates in, in a particular area. They won't they won't take the risk because they're they're the ones who will pick up the tab if if they sign something off and for whatever reason that cold store pushes more out into the grid or it impacts on the frequencies in the, in the local area and damages kits. So we're, we're seeing we're seeing that more and more and there, there are certain areas in the country where um, we, we're, we're being told uh, it's going to be 2027 before you can install um, because it's going to take that long to uh, to get that investment money and that's, that's where um, as I say centrally I'd like to see that infrastructure invested in so that we can put more decentralized renewables on the grid and then that energy can be transported around and can be utilized uh, in a in a clean and effective and cost effective way rather than asking our you know the, the businesses out there to 
to, to fund the, the investment in the national grid infrastructure. But also, Greg, you know, we've had demand response for years and cold stores are great examples of that because if you shut the doors, they'll have a bit of battery. But the schemes are there for like 12 months or 18 months. Make these longer term schemes so that there's some guaranteed revenue from them, Grid, and then cold stores will participate. And they're a great form of storage that exists all over the country. And we're not utilising it because we're not providing the national schemes to incentivise pe people to do that. Um, and actually, they've reduced the schemes. I mean, 10 years ago, there were a lot more schemes available to cold stores to benefit from. And the irony is, the very time we need it, we've actually reduced those schemes. So for me, I would just bring yeah. back some of the incentives to get people to do load management on a much wider scale. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, we, we can start telling what, what, what's wrong with government strategy. We could be here all day and we're running out of time. Um, Peter, yeah. I'm very conscious of your train. Do you want to duck out and, and, and get, get to your, your green awards so I hope to hope you win? Because obviously you're doing great stuff within the Colour Islands. Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, thank you, panel, for the conversation today and thank you, audience, for listening. Have a great day. Yeah. John, can I can I ask you sort of to start to start us off on the sort of closing thoughts part, which is um, the, the context is high, you know, scary cost inflation. You know, sitting looking and looking at looking at you know profit and loss accounts, looking at the cost inputs coming in, and the sort of the fact that it might last for two or three years. Um, how do you think that plays out in terms of confidence across cold chain, cold storage, in terms of this, work, this ability to invest? You know, we've talked a lot in this session about the fact that the solution is to make long-term investment now. Think about how you're going to sort of diversify your portfolio, make long-term commitments to contracts, make build new, new infrastructure. Do you think the energy the industry is more or less in the headspace where they feel confident doing that, or are those short-term pressures actually bearing down on, on people wanting to batten down the hatches? I think that's, it's a really good question, Shane, and uh, my, my view on it, it's pretty evenly split between those two elements at the moment, because I don't think there are many um, cold storage businesses that are finding it easy uh, in the short term, and, and therefore, you know, short term activity has to be there. But likewise, um, we cold storage is a, is a long term business, and I think everything from you know, what Neil and Kath have been saying about taking the, the longer term view, yes, you have to build that, that into your thinking as well. So, you know, for ourselves, solar is the, the most obvious um, next step on this. We do have some structural challenges on the buildings we've been looking at it in terms of uh, being able to fit, you know, but, you know, it's, it's a logical route to take. I think a little bit further down the line, obviously, battery storage is, is another opportunity. Um, and, and obviously, we want to look at that. For the short term, um, it's it's back to using all of that data. I think what we recognise is is our strengths is that we're cold storage and logistics specialists. Um, I would never profess to be uh, an energy expert with a full understanding of the energy market. So, you know, what we do is is try and tie the two things together. Where um, we partner with one of the UK's leading third-party intermediaries, and in fairness. We use our operational expertise and all the data we accumulate, and they interpret that data and, and give us a view in terms of what's going on in the market, in terms of what we, we should be doing. And that's actually a really positive and constructive partnership. So we're actually harnessing the, the expertise of the market with our own expertise as the operators, and all of the decisions are based on hard data. 
I think the bit, and I, I'm told the statistic is true, but the startling fact that uh, that uh, still amazes me is allegedly, I'll say, that three to five percent of bills are incorrect, and that can be anything from the wrong taxes or levies being applied. It can be an incorrect meter reading, or indeed sometimes an incorrect meter serial number applied. So, you know, I I think this that sort of split between keeping an eye on the medium to long term about where you should be going for the long term benefit of your business, but actually managing the pounds and pennies and usage in the short term. You know, it, both are equally applicable for the environment that we're in at the moment. Yeah, that must be music to your ears. And I guess I would say one of my, my top tips is, is don't do this on your own. You know, mm -hmm. this is a difficult, difficult market. Talk to experts. Yeah, talk to experts, analyze your on-site data because you know there's a huge, huge amount you can do. There is still a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of the way people are operating and how they can reduce their cost base. And the other thing I would say is it, I actually think it's higher than three to five percent of bills from what, what we see. And that's largely because the majority of charges the suppliers charging on your bill don't relate to them. They're actually mm -hmm. a debt in many respects so they don't care if they're right or wrong they're just passing that cost on to a distributor or a transmission operator or to hmrc or to offgem or whoever it may be so they're completely oblivious to whether it's right or wrong and that is why you do get so many mistakes so there's some basic stuff that you need to get right and the other thing i would say is attack all of your cost base don't just look at the wholesale energy part look at your distribution charges are, are you in the right bands etc um particularly with the trans the tcfd that came in look at your um transmission charges look at what you can do about some of those green taxes and levies because there's more help out there and more government support than people realize and that is what your industry expert will bring there are schemes that you can participate in but they're very very badly publicized so unless you've got somebody who's trawling through loads of boring data um, and government emissions you won't know that they're there but there is more help out there than you may realize there's help with capital funding you know and there are schemes that can help you reduce your cost base you just need to talk to an expert and they can help you whoever that and, might be. And, I can vouch, and i can vouch for amoresco's ability to do that on behalf of more you know, a good number of our members over the last year or so that have, have Catherine's and her team have helped out with that sort of thing. So, you know, no promises, but definitely ask the question because you, you, you don't know what you might be able to, to achieve. Just a couple of things that come in on, 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 on just comments more than they are questions, but it's really to do with housekeeping. I think we covered this a bit earlier, but just to make the point that you know, I've got people on here talking about the fact that, you know, it is about refrigeration systems and making sure they are maintained to the best standard operating properly. You know, using your refrigeration system in the wrong way is just, just throwing money down the drain. So you need to make sure you're absolutely across that as a day-to-day challenge but also things like insulation and looking at low cost fit, fit outs like you know, it, some people, a lot of people talk about rapid doors and those sorts of things but which can be quite expensive relatively speaking but just curtains things like that you know making sure you've got good basic insulation you're shutting the doors at the right times and you're not you know putting energy out into the atmosphere for, for no reason particularly in this moment um so coming up on the hour thank you so much I, I find that very very useful i know it's a top line discussion around the issues but i think it's it's nothing else it's important at this time to sort of show that we're all in the same boat together and we're trying to trying to trying to find a way a way through um Catherine, you started this off and i asked you to finish this off as well so in terms of in terms of the uh, the conversation um what's your kind of closing kind of message to people apart from the ask experts um, about where about uh, you know, the next two to three years how do they how do businesses um what, what businesses need to do what are the sort of key things businesses do to make sure that they're, they're resilient for the next two to three years 
Okay, so it is do the basics, reduce, you know, your cheapest energy is the stuff you don't use. So reduce whenever you can, genuinely look at on-site generation, but also look at a series of commercial arrangements that can get you to the same thing, whether it's a power purchase agreement, whatever that may be, whether it's trying to, you know, utilize um, land banks that you may or may, may not have. Um, and um, look at export opportunities, which is something that Neil said, as I say, because over the next 18 months to two years, they're probably looking fairly attractive. But what I would say for people who are looking at contracts, maybe coming out of, you know, coming out of contract end of September, beginning of October, the short term message I would say is the market is currently very high, but relatively benign. So just in the short term, if you're looking at putting a new place, a new contract in place, you still go down the flexible contract route. But I would be locking out this winter. I don't think we're going to see any significant change between now and March 2023. So as a short term piece of advice, that's what I'd say to people whilst looking at the longer term solutions post April 23. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Kath. Thank you. Thank you very much. Kath. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, John. And thank you to Peter, who's obviously already left us. Um, more and more conversations on this sort of stuff coming come through to us with questions we'll, we'll forward you on to experts like Kath, like neil we'll also share with you some of the insights that are, you know what's going on around other members in the market that's our job we've got events more discussions on energy coming up but two face-to-face -face events that i'm urging you to make sure you're aware of as culture federation members we are all we are very close to selling out well, on our on our on our july party and we've also uh, got Cold Chain Live conference tickets going fast, so please book begin for that. And thank you to my power in particular for being one of the sponsors of that conference. So thank you all very much. Um, good luck with the next few weeks of, of navigating through the energy market, and um, we'll speak to you soon. Well, there we have it. Well done on getting this far. I don't know about you, but I certainly enjoy having conversations like that. There's nothing better than experts discussing and unpacking a topic and really getting under the skin of it. I mean, the messages that run through that are pretty dark. We are talking about very big uh, price hikes being with us for the medium term. We're talking about issues around shortage and, and, and scarcity and real supply chain pressure coming from energy market, knocking through into a whole range of other things. That said, what it also tells us is that our, our members, our customers are going to need us. You know, we need solutions, we need to drive efficiencies, we need to look at resilience in supply chains in order to uh, face into this difficult period ahead. And that's when, as has been proven all throughout the last three years, cold chain businesses come to the fore, cold chain people come to the fore. So I'm pretty optimistic that we'll, that we'll be able to get through challenges like this one together. Thank you again to the sponsors of the Cold Chain Conversation Series, Star Refrigeration, Unicarriers, Train Technologies. We couldn't do what we do without your support. And I encourage you all to, uh, to give them the credit they deserve for their support for your federation. And I also ask you to, um, if you need any help, if you have any questions, if you have any thoughts, particularly whether you're interested in renewable projects, then I can put you in touch with Neil and the, and the MyPower team, as well as other members of the association. I can also put you in touch with Kath and her team to really get under the, to get that expertise that we talked about in the webinar, to get to get someone to come and talk to you and, and help you to share the, the, the burden of understanding these pressures and making the right judgment calls with the right data and the right uh, analytical uh, experience in doing so. It's daunting. It's challenging, 
But it is what it is, and we are going to solve and sort these problems together. Thank you again for listening to the Cold Chain Podcast. Thank you for your support for the Cold Chain Conversation Series. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Goodbye.